Hello and welcome to Locating Wisdom, the podcast. I'm your host, Virgil. In this episode, we talk to Claire Tate, the visionary behind Chocolate Eclair, a zero-cruelty new Irish chocolate company. So without further ado, let's get into it. So hello, Claire, and thank you very much for coming on to the Locating Wisdom podcast. Hello, Fergal. It's great to be here. Thank you for asking me. No problem. Uh, so uh, what I'd like to do first is to just get the, the guests to introduce themselves and, and their business. Okay, yes. So my name is Claire and um, I have a small chocolate business called Chocolatey Claire. So um, I actually came up with the name of that before I even knew how to make chocolate because I, I, I like the old puns. So um, if you say it quickly, it's chocolatey Claire, obviously. So um, it's a values driven business um, set up specifically on uh, sustainable principles. So um, my supply chain is entirely 100% ethical um, the ingredients are all ethically sourced the um, packaging is 100% environmentally friendly compostable um, recyclable packaging with no plastic in it it's all printed with vegetable based ink um, the chocolate is it's a luxury premium product but it's entirely vegan dairy free gluten free no palm oil or soy or anything like that in it and it's aimed at kind of uh, luxury market, but also people who are interested in maybe giving up dairy or, um, you know, maybe they're, they're celiac or something like that, but also aren't overly enamored with maybe very dark chocolate. So it's kind of a, um, you know, it's, it's not overloaded with sugar, but it's not too bitter either. So that's the product. Yeah. And that sounds very interesting. The last point there, because as far as I was aware, um, vegan chocolate was generally uh, dark chocolate above a certain percentage. That's what I was told, but maybe I was wrong with that. Uh, no, well, vegan chocolate obviously just doesn't have uh, cow's milk in yeah. it. Um, but there's um, a huge range of vegan chocolates now on the market. And in fact, a lot of the big players, the the Nestle's, the Mars, all of those, the Cadbury's, all have vegan chocolate bars and they use a um, cow's milk substitute. Uh, a lot of them are actually very sweet. Mm-hmm. So my chocolate only has four ingredients in it and I, it's um, organic raw cacao nibs from Peru and cacao butter. I use an unrefined organic cane sugar and then I have uh, 10% of the recipe is organic freeze-dried coconut milk powder. So they're the only ingredients in the chocolate. Um, and a lot of the newer uh, vegan chocolates are kind of aimed at people with a sweeter tooth. And then you do have the more traditional dark chocolates, which a lot of them, not all of them now, but a lot of them would be vegan if they have a higher percentage of cocoa. Some of them still have whey powder as one of the minor ingredients, which is obviously a milk byproduct. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's incredible. So only four only four ingredients with, within the product itself. That's that's fantastic. That's a... Uh... Without even being vegan, that's just a a, a healthy thing. Like uh, um, I've always been told, the less in, the less ingredients on the packet is, the healthier the it can actually be for you. Yeah, absolutely. And the if less, it doesn't if it doesn't even come in a package, the health <laughs> that's the yeah, healthiest food yeah, you can get. That's true. That's true. So um, yeah. So I mean, obviously, with the chocolate industry, there's there's still a lot of 
slavery and forced labor and and child labor particularly yes. in the west african plantations so um i only deal with suppliers who who have a very robust ethics policy okay. and i deal with a supplier who works with um small farmers small organic farm cocoa farmers in peru so um and they you know they're um involved with humanitarian and environmental um projects on the ground there and they reinvest in in reforestation as well in in peru so i kind of i i go to a, a as far as i can to make sure that all of my ingredients are sourced ethically everybody in the supply chain is properly paid and um hence you know it's a, it's a it's a luxury item if you like but one of my mantras is to buy less but buy better and i think that that basically should apply to everything we buy now Absolutely. i think consumers have all the power have much more power than they think they do and you know it's you just vote with your with your wallet and if you're not uh, in support of the methods of production or the you know even the leanings the political leanings or um you know the way corporations or businesses treat their workforce if you're not in support of that then just don't buy from them so i think that's kind of you know it's it's a fairly easy way of cutting out quite a lot of <laughs> quite a lot of things as well but i think it actually behoves us as consumers to find out who we're buying from mm-hmm. um you know i don't think ignorance is really an excuse all the information is available as to who owns what companies yeah. and you know if you are ethically minded or if you're um conscious of uh, the provenance of your food then you know um we should all look at who we're buying from who we're supporting who we're paying to produce our food absolutely yeah and you touched on a few good points there like we the consumer holds all the all the power like yes. we, we we choose like it is, it is us that shapes the market in that way, and like you said, we have all the information available. If if we want to go and look and see who owns the company, um, what their ethics are. I know Nestle have got themselves in many many different uh, yes dodgy scenarios, and um, there's documentaries and articles, but a lot of people are. I think maybe want to keep their head in, in, in the sand when it comes to, to stuff like that also. I agree with you. And I think, I think, um, I mean, I was talking to a young woman at a market I was doing one time and she said, oh, I'm very interested in, um, you know, your, your chocolate. And she said, I, I, I know there are a lot of documentaries, you know, on Netflix or whatever. She said, I don't want to look at them because if I if I did, then I'd have to do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just <laughs> thought, you know, that this kind of fingers in your ear, uh, in your yeah. ears philosophy of um, oh, if I don't know, then I can't be kind of held responsible for it. You know, I, I think you do have to have a good reason for changing the way you do things. I mean, um having to or compelling yourself to to switch to a different product or a different supplier you know maybe you feel your head is too full already you've enough going on but i do feel that um it's very worth while to be 
proud of what you buy, to be comfortable of what you're spending your money on and to feel that your money is going to people or companies that um, align with your own ethics. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think from, well, from the outside looking in, because I, I'm not involved in that industry, but I think um, public sentiment has swayed in the last maybe five, five years towards being more accountable to what companies that you do support. Um, would you have noticed that yourself with, within your industry from when you started to, to, to where you are now in terms of um, how customers would approach your product if, if they're more willing to, to go for the higher end product because they know that they're going to be supporting the farmers that are at the very beginning of the, the supply chain? Yes, I do think that there is a much more universal consumer awareness of um, food production. You know, I think it it would be hard to ignore it. Um, And I think in theory, practically everybody would say, obviously, they want to support ethical businesses. Obviously, they want people to be paid properly for what they do. Um, You know, we all have a very acute idea of fairness when it comes to ourselves and, you know, extending that beyond ourselves to other um, other humans, other animals, you know, other uh, treatments of the environment. You know, I think we're all part of the same package, but it takes a little bit of a, um, a leap to kind of extend your own personal um indignation if you were if you were shortchanged on something you'd be you know that how dare they not Mm. pay me properly for Mm -hmm. that whatever it is and yet we are quite happy to say oh look at this extraordinarily cheap t-shirt they look at this extraordinarily cheap food um i'll be having that thanks without thinking well obviously if it's very very cheap somebody it's costing somebody dearly and it's it's not the it's not the people at the top it's the people at the bottom so the other thing is and you know i do i do think that sustainability encompasses several strands and to think that sustainability is is only an environmental issue is 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 quite a narrow view of it Mm. i think sustainability encompasses humans and animals and the environment and without protecting and respecting all of that then we're missing out on everything because it all affects everything affects the rest you know and to say that you know um it doesn't matter if people are treated poorly in warehouses or whatever uh, i'll still buy from such a platform um that affects if people are, are on very low wages then obviously their limited income is going to be spent on maybe the cheaper stuff. So we're basically compelling people to to buy cheap stuff that's made cheaply where people people are not paid properly. So it's like a self-fulfilling yeah. wheel <laughs> that goes around. You know, people should be paid properly. People should have sufficient income to feed themselves and their family proper nutritious food. People should have enough income to to clothe themselves sufficiently that, you know, with, with, with um, clothing that's made ethically or that, that's not exploitative. So I do think that um, it's a, it maybe sounds like a bit of a political argument, but I do think that 
uh, everything is connected and we don't need to keep on buying stuff. I think we need to consume less, but buy better stuff, buy um, products and food and clothing and everything tech mm. that is produced where people are paid properly and where there isn't the same level of exploitation as there is for a lot of industries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I 100% agree with everything you said there. Um, I was actually having a conversation earlier today with um, a colleague and we were talking about the, the three P's of sustainability, people, planet and profit, of course. Um, but I think the word sustainability, when you hear it now, like a lot of people don't consider people, as you just said, they, they just consider environmental aspects of sustainability. But like you said, it all has to be taken into account 100 percent. Yeah, I also think that animals are a key part of that. And I think exploitation of animals has resulted in massive detriment to the environment, which is obvious. And even the recent reports of our own waterways in Ireland, where there's like 50 percent of them are, you know, um, polluted with nitrates or whatever from largely from um, animal production, animal farming and rearing. I heard on and the, think, the re sorry, sorry to cut yeah, across, just, just to add to that point, I heard on the radio this morning that the EPA released a report on wastewater treatment within Ireland and there's still 22 or 23 um, plants that are still releasing raw sewage. Yeah. Crazy. It's <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. But there's all that sewage coming from the, the herds as well. The national herd is yeah. producing an awful lot of sewage. Yeah. And like all of that stuff is going into the runoff into waterways and all of that. So I, 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 you know, even apart from the, I would say, objectively miserable lives of the uh, farmed animals, that yeah. there is the, the very detrimental environmental impact also. Yeah, yes, uh, absolutely. It's, it's almost that the way I look at that is, you know, as humans, the way we live, like we're always going to have uh, some sort of negative impact um, within our immediate environment. But it's if we can reduce that negative impact in some way, um, we definitely should, and especially when it comes to products that we produce, services that we offer uh, as businesses. Yeah, no, I agree with that one hundred percent. And you, you, you clearly have a lot of passion. You feel very strongly about that, so. Would, would that would that have been one of the primary reasons for for starting your, your chocolate business? Yes. Um, so I, along with my husband, uh, became vegetarian at the end of the 80s. Okay. And um, we have two adult sons, both of whom are vegetarian from birth. And um, about seven or eight years ago, um, there was a few things niggling, niggling at me about the dairy industry and I just looked into it and we, we looked at it as a family and we decided, you know, for if we are not supporting, you know, if we're not eating meat for um, ethical reasons, you could say, then we clearly can't support dairy farming for the same reasons, for the same ethical reasons. So we, we all gave up, we all became vegan then and, um, about seven or eight years ago. And, uh, you know, we, 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 had, we did look at the documentaries. We did look into it, you know, uh, critically, because it's one of my um, main 
considerations is to be critical. And I we, we raised our two sons to to be critical about everything, which didn't always go in our favour. But however, <laughs> and, I and just did, think... did they have any did they have any kickback to um, like you said they were vegetarians from birth? Yeah. Was there was there any kickback to that at all? Maybe in the the angsty teenage period. No, like it was interesting because, you know, they did have pals in school who mm. would like were completely incredulous that they had never had, you know, the chicken nuggets or whatever uh, and yeah. would say, oh, I bet you can't wait to leave home so you can start eating the beef burgers. And they were saying, well, no, why would I want to do that? It's like you ask me saying to me, oh, let's go and boil up the dog. It, <laughs> yeah, it just yeah. makes absolutely no sense to, to make no sense to them at all to ever want to. You know, it's like people say, do you find it hard not to eat cows? I said, well, do you find it hard not to eat cats? So of course you don't find it hard not to eat cats. <laughs> you know, it's the same. Uh, and why would you ever want to? That would be my my opinion now. And the two boys, they're, they, I mean, I, I'm not prescriptive about... Um, their own decisions obviously they're 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 adults they're um but they are entirely 100% in this philosophy because they're convinced of it that it is and uh, the kindest i believe the kindest way of living that kind of um respects and protects all parts of the world all parts of our planet and all creatures who share it with us so i actually don't see any downside whatsoever. Um, my younger son, who was, he's 20 now, I think he was about 13 when we when we went vegan. And but prior to that, he had been very dairy oriented. He loved his mm. cheesy stuff. Uh after about six months uh on when we were vegan, I, I asked him, I said, Do you miss the all your cheesy stuff? And he said, Ah oh, no, ma'am, it's made with pain. And I just thought, well, that is a very solid way of looking at it. So yeah. I actually, because I, I for decades, would, would not, I don't like the look of meat or in a butcher's count. I don't like that at all. But, uh, but I w when we went vegan first, I still liked the look of cheese. I liked the look of, you know, I would have been a quite a cheese, you know, posh cheese kind of person. Um, and because my son had put that into my head, I, I would look at it then and say, it's made with pain. And gradually, almost imperceptibly, my whole thinking was retrained. And now I, I can't stand the look of it. I don't like the smell of it, anything about it. So you're, you're conditioned through your through practice through your life thinking, oh, X, Y, Z is gorgeous, whatever that means to you. But a lot of it is is an acquired, you know, taste or appreciation or whatever, whatever it is you consider to be gorgeous or delicious. And, you know, being objective about something is difficult when, you're, when, when you're, your whole self is convinced of this. So I basically retrained my way of thinking. And now uh, you know, I have zero desire to have any of it any cheese and just on that sorry um i know that the that there are many different vegan cheese varieties but any that i've had they haven't um been very impressive but the, the guest i had on last week uh kian of uh, he, he actually runs a 
a vegan protein milk drink uh, company that they started a few months ago. And he, he mentioned he, he had heard of a company and I, I can't remember the name. He didn't remember the name, so I definitely can't okay. remember the name. But he said, he I think he tasted it and it was no different at all than cheese. He couldn't tell the difference. So yeah. I think it, it, it traditionally the vegan cheeses have been dire. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. But there are newer ones coming on the market um, which are better. And again, like cheese is quite addictive. So there mm. is something, you know, that, that, you know, would compel you to eat it. And it is difficult to give up. It's a bit like a drug, I think. It's a bit difficult to give up. But um, I think that the, the key to it is to not try to necessarily replace it with something that's exactly the same, because that's not what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, there there are newer cheeses which are much better than ones that I tasted, you know, years ago when we started on this. Um, and there are more coming on stream. But, you know, there are plenty of other options. So it's not the only show in town anyway. I mean, I, I do find people saying, oh, I would give up uh, or I'd be vegan if it wasn't for the cheese. I'd be vegan if it wasn't for the chocolate, which is one of the <laughs> which is one of the reasons I started making the chocolate you know i wanted people to uh, to have access to a delicious chocolate that um that doesn't have dairy in it that is that kind of would meet your expectations of what chocolate is and what you want it to be um without you know without having any animal products in it yeah absolutely and like you you mentioned earlier to buy less but by higher quality goods um yeah i'm fully on board with that as well it kind of ties into the circular economy um idea and also like chocolate we all know is not very good no well, it's not that it's not good for us but we shouldn't be eating it every day it needs to be eaten within moderation so if you're you know it, it's going to be good for uh, me anyone as the consumer to actually buy less and yes and yeah and and, and like your, your ethos to you're buying less, but at least, you know, it's all going to find its way to suppliers and farmers along the food chain. Yeah, no, um, big, big fan of that ethos. I, I, I mentioned, I seen somewhere on your, your website, you are, was it a sustainability policy or a sustainability uh, document that you have as well that you've. Yes. So I decided to put together a sustainability charter and basically charter. document um, all the principles behind my business. It was actually quite good for me to to, to put it down in a framework like that mm-hmm. and to recognise that um, my principles affect every decision that I make, every, every business decision and every personal decision. And that doesn't mean that I spend my whole day going, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's actually, you know, it's, it's a... It's, it's a liberating really, is it? It's, it's an easy way of choosing. It's an easy way of deciding. You know, there's so much choice in every every aspect of life, every purchase. There's loads and loads of choice. So if you can kind of narrow it down according to, you know, what are the principles of this supplier? What are the ethics? What are the methods? What are, you know, do I agree with that? Do I want to give them my money? Um, what am I paying for here? And... One way that I kind of um, investigate, you know, companies or, or any kind of concept is even if I am already 
convinced of it as being, you know, what, what, what suits me, I would type in to Google, what's wrong with, and then whatever it is, what's wrong with X, and get all the counter arguments, get all, you know, I think it's, it's crucial to, to get all sides of an argument so that you can make an informed decision to not only look at documentation that already agrees with you. I think I think that's a mistake. I think uh, I remember when I can't remember what I was looking for. Uh, and my son was was here looking over my shoulder. He said, oh, why are you looking at that website? Because it was the direct opposite of what <laughs> what he yeah. would have thought I'd be interested in. I said, I, I need to find out the arguments, the basis for this this argument as to what they're putting forward. Why 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 are they suggesting that this is the way to do it? Uh, I mean, ultimately, I came to the same conclusion as I had before I started. But it's, you need to arm yourself with facts. You need to furnish yourself with um, proper, critically worked out opinions that you are then happy to stand by. Absolutely. And then you have more confidence when you are talking about what you're talking about, when you yes. know that you've covered the entire playing field, that you've seen every inch of grass as such, that you can have confidence in your decisions and why you've taken them decisions. It's very, I think a lot of, I think everyone should do a good deep dive analytical think about their actions and why they decide to do what they decide to do. I think it would clear a lot of things up for, for individuals. Like for, for myself, um, I've started doing that in the last few months and yeah, it, it brings a sense of clarity and, and purpose behind what you actually do. And I recommend everyone to, to think deeper about what, exactly what the, their actions and why they choose to do what they do. Yeah. It's yeah. like doing an audit on yourself. Really. Yeah, an audit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not very comfortable sometimes Absolutely, because, yeah. you know, there, the there mirror, is a little bit difficult. of, yeah, there's a bit of pain in in um, switching to something else, some, to, to an alternative. There's a bit of pain in that. But I mean, if you're if if you had a good if you have good reasons to do something, I, I think actually you need good reasons in order to switch successfully. There's no point in doing thing. I I don't think there's much point in doing something on a whim that you haven't worked out clearly why you're doing it. Because it, you're not as likely to stick with it. Well, yeah, if you're well, not clear, it, why? What, yeah. What's the purpose? When when a difficult moment comes, you can be more easily swayed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, one hundred percent. One hundred percent agree with that. I I did a. It was like a. An endurance event. It was a. It's called a four by four by forty eight, where we had to run four miles every forty, every four miles every four uh, hours for 48 hours. So we had to keep getting up in the night to, to do the runs. Wow. And me and my, my friend was staying in my house when we did it. And we said, I said to him, we need to have a clear idea <laughs> exactly why we're doing this or yes. else four o'clock in the morning is going to come and we're going to be like, nah, let's What's just stay point? in bed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we needed to have a clear idea that we could hold up under a microscope and say, okay, this, okay, we need to get out of bed. We have to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And you did it. Yeah, oh yeah, we did it. Yeah, we did it. It was <laughs> it was tough. It's funny though, like I think around the second or third last one, like we started to pick up the pace because we were tracking our, you know, pace the whole time. And no matter how tired you think you are, like you were just able to push through. 
um, mm. and, and get a get a. I think my fastest one was my second last one. Now my last one, I was absolutely goosed, but but the second yeah. last one, uh, I think it was the fastest one I did over. Yeah, I think it was twelve runs. Like so, it's mad what you can do when when you really when you really want to push it. Exactly. Yes, yeah, so you can surprise yourself. Um, and Claire, was there any books in particular? Um, that influenced you when you were starting your um, chocolate eclair business? Uh, yes, well, there was a book that influenced me um, back in the 80s, in the late 80s, and, and, and did actually change my life. Uh, it is a book called Living Without Cruelty, and it's by a guy called Mark Gold. And um, it, it, it definitely changed my life because I... Had I'd only ever known, I knew one vegetarian at that time. Um, he was an ex-boyfriend of my sister's. And um, it was weirder being a vegetarian in the 80s than it is being a vegan nowadays, basically, uh, with far less choice. But anyway, he, he was vegetarian because he had... Um, had had zero interest in being a vegetarian and thought about it all until he took a summer job in a, in a slaughterhouse. And then... Um, after like a very short period, decided, well, I'm not going to, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to support this anymore. So he became a vegetarian, and I did had interesting chats with him, and there was kind of an ethereal concept in my head about why it was a good idea, and that I was interested in it. And, um, but this book, Living Without Cruelty, it really consolidated my ideas, and it put a framework on, um, what it meant. And what was involved, and it did, you know, provide facts and arguments as to why it was a, a logical um, way of living. And also going back to a previous point we we made, um, he was talking about injustice. So, for example, if you say you're against injustice and you choose, like, oh, I, I I'm against X type of injustice. However, I'm quite fine with Y type of injustice. That doesn't bother me at all. It, that that's, that doesn't make sense. So if you are against injustice as a concept, then you have to apply it to every aspect. So hence, you know, workers' rights or animals, industrially farmed animals, or, you know, people trashing the environment. You know, all of those types of things um, or political... Um, regimes or, or those kind of systems. Um, if, you're, if you're against injustice, then you have to apply it universally. So anyway, this, this book, Living Without Cruelty, was a huge um, factor in me basically um, confirming that it was the way that I wanted to live and confirming that there was a pathway to do it. And then in fact, it's once you've decided that there's a framework and that it's worth doing, it is actually very, very easy. And us, myself, my husband, when we declared ourselves vegetarian back then, it was like a massive release that we didn't have to eat meat when we went to his mom's house for Sunday dinner or whatever. Um, that it was it was it was huge. So it never felt like it was restricting. It felt like it was a massive embrace of something bigger so that was that was the book that that really uh i think changed my life there was another book i was thinking about it um that i remember very very fondly from my childhood and it's a seemingly very frivolous 
book uh, called 15 by an author called Beverly Cleary. And the reason that it meant so much to me was I read it when I was 12. Um, and at that stage, um, my grandmother lived with us. My my parents were already dead. My my father died when I was 12. My mother died when I was nine. Um, my grandmother came to live with us. Uh, now, she wasn't the our guardian. My, my aunt um, was our guardian, but my grandmother came to live with us as well. But she was a very rigid, strict, prescriptive type of person. Um, who compelled us basically to go to the local library every week, which was fine. That was a good thing to do. But she had only certain approved authors, <laughs> basically. So you had to come back with books by, you know, classic authors or ones she, she you know, uh, were on the, the OK list for her. <laughs> and this book that I picked up, I'd spotted, and it was called 15, and the the opening line is, today I'm going to meet a boy. And I just, you know, and she completely disapproved of this book. And I just thought it was the first time that I read something uh, that I wasn't really allowed to or wasn't supposed to. Um, and it was subject matter that was entirely alien to me, you know, this this whole concept of you know, meeting boys or having a boyfriend or, or being, you know, even being pretty or going out. Um, but it, it it actually, it allowed me to dream about something else. And I just, you know, just felt that it kind of opened up a little bit of a, um, a fantasy kind of a, a world, but it was, it was also not unattainable. And it actually, I, I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. And it really brings home to me um, how I don't think books should be, you know, um, approved of or allowed or prescribed or, you know, um, only kind of certain books are, you know, are worth reading. I don't think that's true. Yeah. And I, I worked for about 10 years in the adult literacy sector and all reading, all books, all any any literature or lit, anything you want to call it, that allows you to dream or find information or think is worth reading. So that's why that particular <laughs> kind of um, book yeah. also st stood with me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that kind of, we have a bit of an issue today with censorship and, you know, information being being censored. And, and like you said there earlier as well, you like to see both sides of the story to get a full understanding of a situation. But if we're being censored, we can't actually get both sides of the story. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I find that a very interesting point um, just about censorship. And I, obviously it was your grandmother placing the censorship uh, <laughs> yeah. upon you at that time. But yeah, no, it's, it's amazing as well. Like how we can, how certain, like, how we're, when when we are introduced to, to different media so like that book at that certain time had such an impact on you but maybe if you read it a year before 
you wouldn't have even cared about it. Do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a book I mentioned actually on, on the last podcast as well, a book that I read was called Psycho-Cybernetics. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. Um, yeah, no, it's just, it's basically just a book. Um, kind of like a self-improvement book, but that entire concept was completely alien to me um, before I read it. And once I read that book, um, you know, that whole sort of world opened up to me. Um, but yeah, it was just the right book at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I find it very fascinating. Um, but could you speak to us a bit, Claire, please, about the chocolate making process itself? Um, I, I, I saw a couple of videos on YouTube where you have a mold and it's filled with chocolate and then you place the filling inside and then put the mold on top. Now, maybe I'm completely wrong with that, but is, is yeah. that a rough idea of how yes. it's made? So, yeah, when I started this chocolate business, I didn't know anything. So I, I literally Googled, how do you make chocolate? And <laughs> um, had a look at uh, a lot of recipes and basically you know, played around with ingredients and quantities and came up with a recipe that I was happy with. And there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of trial and error. And yes, basically, when I started, I had no equipment at all, really. I had a tiny little, you know, melter and a small uh, pot, which I used to, to make the chocolate in, um, and a, a, a little uh, temperature gun, which I was trying to use to, to temper the chocolate, which was very hit and miss because it has to get to certain temp temperature um, and in order to be, you know, to, to be stable when it's set. But um, yeah, so basically then I would pour the chocolate into the moulds or like the first layer of it and then put in, say, you know, I had organic freeze-dried raspberries or strawberries or I'd salted peanuts or I'd something else, put it in and then cover that with another layer of chocolate and then it'll be let set for for a while and then you, it contracts when it's set and then you, you just flip it out onto the onto the table. I have since got a chap to, to, to make the chocolate for me because... Um, I was trying to do everything myself. I was, and, and I didn't have proper equipment uh, and I didn't have full-time access to the kitchen I was working out of. Yeah. So I, I came to a decision point where I had to um, basically decide whether I was going to invest in my own kitchen, um, a load of proper equipment, maybe hire somebody or outsource the production so I already knew some some chocolate makers so find somebody who already had the type of equipment that was needed who I knew well who I could uh, train with my particular recipe who I knew had um, a dairy-free and a gluten-free kitchen so basically that's what I did because that was far less uh, risky that me invest in a load of money. And also I, I really didn't want to be a in a position where I was responsible for somebody else's wages if things went wrong. So that's yeah. what I did. So I now, because he has, you know, much better equipment than I ever had, I could afford to basically change up the recipe a little bit and get um, the organic, the raw uh, cacao nibs, which are like basically little little pieces of the the cocoa bean and so he so they can now can be ground down with the cocoa butter and the um um 
unrefined cane sugar and then the coconut milk powder. And then that's that's let now um, grind away for, you know, 24, 36 hours, something like that. So then it's poured into the mould. So it's still that the the system is still then the same once the chocolate is done. It's hand poured into the moulds. The fillings are put in, the, the inclusions they're called. And it's all set and they're all ha- wrapped by hand as well. So I have these um, little um, um, compostable wrappers for the chocolate bars. They're like little pockets. So they uh, the chocolate bar goes in there and it's hand sealed and then it goes into a little, uh, little cardboard box. Okay. And so the, the wrappers themselves for the chocolate are compostable? And- yes. Yeah. Yes. No, so it's 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 a it's a, a cellulose based material that um, looks like plastic and behaves like plastic in the ways that are are positive. So, for example, it it is a proper barrier for the food. It can be heat sealed, um, but because it because it looks like plastic, I basically got printed on it, made from compostable material because. Um, I didn't want you know people to think oh she's she's gone back to using plastic in her in her packaging which is which is not what I was doing it's home compostable as well so if you've your you know your compost bin you can use that or your your municipal brown bin yeah. um so that's yeah I wanted the everything right down to the packaging to yeah. be as sustainable as I can manage it yeah fantastic and uh yeah you t- you touched on so did, did you bring another person into your business or is it a sort of partnership that he makes the chocolate? Um, well, I just, I outsourced the production to him, oh, but okay. I, Sorry, he's yes. not an employee as such. No, I just pay, I pay him for what he does for me. Yeah. So yeah. I would tell him I need X, Y, and Z and, and he, he makes that now for me, which is brilliant. It has allowed me to try to promote the business a bit more, try to expand and try and scale up a little bit. Um, I was having tremendous difficulties in um, marketing myself. It's it's my least skill, I think. It's the most uh, difficult thing for a business. You, you can have the best product in the world, but if no one knows about it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. And I think it's I'm I'm very I'm not very good at it. Um, I'm to, I'm very hesitant. I'm very self conscious, um, and I'm thinking I spend a lot of my time going. <laughs> how am I going to? How am I going to bring this chocolate in front of more people? Because I do, I do genuinely believe that more people would like my chocolate than think they would. It's yeah. not. It's not a chocolate that's only for vegans. It's not only for celiacs. It's not only for people who you know, who are zero waste or, or that. It's like most of my customers aren't any of those. Most of my customers are people who love chocolate, like a rich tasting chocolate. And people would say to me, oh, a lot of the bigger brands now, the flavor has gone down. They're putting palm oil in it and fillers in it and other types of fats or whatever. Um, you know, and they find that they're horsing into the 100 gram bar because they're actually not getting a satisfactory mm. chocolate feeling so you know um, a purer richer chocolate with fewer ingredients you're getting like a a, um, a better cocoa taste and a better feeling and a richer flavor and a more satisfactory experience so that's kind of what I what I was aiming for so you know one of the things is 
persuading, you know, people of a wider audience that they that they might like the chocolate. And that's kind of a big challenge now for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think there's a certain stigma that comes with um, you're gluten free or vegan that it's going to be. It's going to taste like grass. Yeah, that it's going to have a more. Uh, yeah umami taste or a more robust sort of taste that isn't what you're used to but but like yeah like you say you have full confidence in that y- your product is delicious and i'm sure i'm sure it is i'm actually sorry i haven't i didn't get a chance to try one uh yet but i definitely 100 will um i asked around and one of my friends had tried it and he said it was delicious Oh, excellent. I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah, I, I kind of, you know, when you're working for yourself as well, you basically feel like you're talking into a vacuum. You know, I have no massive feedback as to yeah. as to what the general opinion is. And now I know it's not for everybody. I mean, not everybody likes not everybody likes Mars bars. So it's it's it would be ridiculous to think that everybody would like it. Um, but I do think it would ha- it 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 would have a wider audience appreciation than the audience might might anticipate <laughs> yeah and would you find so you've been in the, the vegan chocolate space for i assume longer than the bigger companies would have been in the vegan chocolate space yes w- would you find that them entering the space has brought more awareness and or brought uh, awareness which has raised the profile of vegan chocolate which maybe has it has it um improved sales for you or would you find that it's increased competition and sales maybe aren't as are are struggling because of the the big players moving into the market yeah well obviously the big players have huge advantages they have their network already yeah they have their customer base they have their network they have their massive marketing outlets as well teams absolutely sure they're everywhere Mm. um we mentioned Nestle before. I mean, I haven't bought anything from Nestle for decades and decades. And to me, being vegan is part of being um, ethical. And it's not just about the food. Uh, now, I understand that some vegans don't think like that at all. They think, oh, if the, if the product doesn't have animal, animal um, ingredients in it, then, you know, the rest is irrelevant. So to me... It's a bit of an anathema that Nestle has, is promoting vegan products. Um, but, you know, I think it depends on the purchaser. It, it depends on the consumer. It is certainly better for the animals that the products are vegan. Um, so I think there's still a place for uh, products like mine that have like a fully sustainable ethical credentials because um, in those departments, we can certainly stand up to the bigger players. And I think even from a taste perspective, we can stand up against the bigger players on a range. You know, people like different things. People like different tastes and different flavors. That's absolutely fine. The point is that there's choice the point is that there are options and you know um i don't i don't think that the bigger players being on the market has made it any easier for anybody to buy my stuff i absolutely not um but then again there are more people choosing to buy vegan stuff so there are still a proportion of people who would say you know 
I will still buy from a small ethical brand rather than from from Nestle. So swings yeah. and roundabouts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you entered the the marketplace initially, um, like you mentioned, you, you had zero experience in chocolate making. So I assume zero experience in the retail industry in terms of having a product to market. Oh, zero. Yes, absolutely. I knew nothing. And did you find it? Were you introduced to any business mentors through any programs that the likes of and uh, local enterprise that I offered or anything like that? Yes. So um, the first program I did was the um, the Dublin the Dublin food chain and Super Value run the the food academy. Um, so I did that, which was marvelous for me because you know, as I said, I had no clue whatsoever. Um, now, as it turned out, ultimately. Being in a, in a supermarket wasn't the, the best place for my type of product. Um, you know, if you're beside the two for one Mars bars, you're you're kind of, yeah. unless somebody is specifically looking for your type of product, I found it kind of difficult. Um, where my chocolate sits better would be in like a, a high-end food hall type place or like cafes. Or, or something like that? Uh, yeah, I do have a bit of a problem with Avoca because they're owned by Aramark and Aramark run the um, catering for the direct some of the direct provision centres. So I <laughs> I deliberately don't engage with Avoca. Um, now, maybe they wouldn't want me either, but, you know, I, I kind yeah. of, uh, I try and choose my platforms very carefully. I mean, for example, I won't even sell on Amazon. I think... Um, you know, I don't agree with the way they, you know, pay or don't pay their taxes or pay or don't pay their people properly. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, you might say that I cutting out a load of of options for myself, but I would prefer to, um, to be able to stand over my choices. Um. Oh, it's very, very. Um. It's a a very noble decision, and it goes back to your um, sustainability, uh, mandate. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does definitely. And I think um, I do think that people appreciate when you when you explain your reasons for for doing things or not doing other things. I I think a lot of people appreciate that. I mean, I'm having a current issue where um, one of my products is hand painted chocolate bonbons. I don't know if you saw them on the website. They're a fairly kind of luxury posh item. Um, And um Brown Thomas in Dublin had said they would take them in and stock them but subject to a, a packaging upgrade and so there ensued a um a circuitous chase around the world for ethical packaging and i discovered that most of kind of rigid posh packaging is made in china ultimately even if you're dealing with a you know a, um, an agency or whatever in in europe um now not all but that most of it was made in china and i can't stand over that obviously you know i i don't buy anything from an oppressive regime so i kind of said well i can't you know i can't go down that route so anyway i have ultimately then uh, settled on um, a packaging company which is actually based in the UK and they have um, the, uh, their, their products, their, their packaging is manufactured in the UK and uh, they have a whole set of, you know, vegan 
packaging, including vegan inks and vegan um, glue and all that kind of thing. So I'm very, very pleased. It's in process at the moment. Should I, I, I should have the actual packaging and it'll be very posh and it'll be very luxurious and it'll be fantastic. And I'm delighted because, um, you know, there were suggestions that look at, it's going to be more expensive if you go for ethical packaging, it's going to be more expensive, obviously. Um, why don't you park that for now? Get the stuff in China so that you can get it on the market and you can be ethical later. And I thought that doesn't sit well with me. Um, now, obviously, I did get some quotes that were through the roof and I said, well, maybe I'm going to have to just abandon this idea altogether. But this particular um, packaging company and their design company as well that, I, that I'm now working with, I'm really, really pleased with them. And I think it's going to strike a balance that's that's it's going to be uh, brilliant, a great solution in the end. Fantastic. Fantastic. You stuck to your guns. Stuck to my guns. Yeah, exactly. Because I was thinking I'm just going to have to abandon it. I can't just say... Oh well, sure. Look at to hell with it all. I'll buy the stuff from China. That 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 would make no sense to me. And yeah. you know, anybody who who would like to say, well, hang on, you know, what happened? This ethical supply chain you were banging on about ten minutes ago that's gone out the window. Um, you know, I think I really genuinely think that any business person um, needs to be authentic. You need to be transparent. You need to be able to stand over your decisions. And if your customers poke at you, you need to be able to explain yourself. Um, and that's what I try to do. Uh, so so w- once you get that uh, packaging sorted, you're going to, we'll be able to find you in Brown Thomas then? Yes. So that's the plan. And, Fantastic. Um, Brown Thomas is owned by the same people who own Harrods and uh, various other posh places so I'm hoping that it'll be like um, a launching pad as well for me to get into the higher end places because um, I think even even, (laughs) but even people with loads of money um, surely they want to be ethical at this stage of the game so to to present consumers with a luxury posh item that is fully ethical as well and sustainable I'm hoping that that'll be a winning combination. Absolutely. And yeah, it probably is more your, your target market. Um, well, I, I think so because um, obviously the, my chocolate is expensive compared to other chocolates. Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with a floods of um, cheap chocolate on the market because you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff is is sourced through you know whatever forced labor or whatever. Then obviously you can you can provide products that are cheap, um, but it does leave people with an impression that chocolate should be cheap, and this is kind of a um, bit of a battle for for chocolate businesses like myself who are saying, well, look at if if the um, products are produced ethically then there is a higher price you know that that's logical and that makes sense and chocolate i really do believe should be a luxury item and that you do savor and you do kind of eat less of you have you choose it carefully you enjoy it thoroughly and you eat less of it that's that's what i think 
Yeah, hundred percent. And it goes back to the uh, well, the outdated now food pyramid. It's at the very top, eating. Yes. Very, very <laughs> yeah. moderate. Um. Yeah. No. Fantastic. And and all the best with with that. And hopefully, the the packaging comes soon, and we can we can find you in Brown Thomas and other stores like that. That that would be an a a huge um achievement and when that happens do you have um capacity in place that you would be able to to start to produce a lot more if the demand was to was to have a big jump all of a sudden would you have capacity to to meet that well yeah the 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 guy who's making the chocolate for me already he's he is he is only the one person but he has got some help in now as well he is an extremely busy guy um, with a very professional or um, outfit that he has running, um, so I think he, there is capacity there, even within my current context, to to scale up a little bit because um, because I'm not very good at marketing. <laughs> uh, I don't have a huge number of outlets. I don't have massive sales by any means at all. Uh, so I'm hoping to even just progress. You know, I'm not talking about world domination, but it, it hasn't reached the point where I would have to um, maybe look at different ways of, of production even, I don't think, at this stage. What would you say your first big success in the business was that you had to to really work for and to, it's something that just didn't come easy for Chocolate Eclair, the business, that was a real milestone that you hit? Um, I think I'll be very honest with you. I don't think I don't feel very successful. I feel um, that there's a, that there's still a lot of potential there with Chatterley Clare that has not been reached. And part of my current challenge is actually knowing how to reach that potential. I mean, obviously. The you know when my when my website went live and the first time I got this ping on my Shopify thing saying that somebody bought something that oh, was yeah. like extraordinary you know and I actually set the um you know the the ring the, the tone to associated with the sale on um Shopify to be that old fashioned um uh kitching <laughs> kind of sound and it just made me laugh. But it was I, it, <laughs> that was a huge, a huge boost for me. That mm. basically, that anybody, mm. any randomer uh, who wasn't my family would want to buy it was massive achievement for me. And I still feel hugely uh, appreciative when people buy it. And like I, I on my website, I have um, I obviously gather reviews from people who have bought it. And they are hugely gratifying for me because the vast, vast majority of the reviews are are overwhelmingly positive. And I really do appreciate people taking the time to do that because often even myself, you know, you get, you're, you're, you're in a place or you get service and you think that is outstanding and you intend to write a review and then, you know, sometimes it goes out of your head and you don't get around to it. So I, 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 I hugely appreciate people doing that. And all of those 
sales, every single sale that I get, I feel is a massive achievement. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I think getting into Brown Thomas, hopefully now that will actually materialise. I think getting into Brown Thomas will be a huge, huge achievement for me. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely would. I I really appreciate the 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 answer there. You know, you you obviously take great pride in in the business, and like every single sale really means means a lot to you. Um, yeah, no, fantastic. That, that was a great answer. Thanks for that. Um, I'm actually yeah, I'm I'm, I'm intrigued to hear your answer to the next questions because uh, as you touched on, buy less. Um, but buy better. So one of the questions that I'd like to ask people is something that you've bought in the last two years or so for a relatively small amount. So let's say under 100, under 150 euro that has had a great impact on your life, not even necessarily the business, but just in general. Oh, well, I can think of a few things. And like, I'm actually a very frugal, frugal, should I say, I'm a very frugal uh, buyer. Um, so, I mean, even if you said under 100 quid, I go, what, 100 quid? Um, <laughs> one of the best things I ever bought in my life was a, a, a raincoat with a kind of a, a lovely warm lining and um, it's 100% waterproof and I love it. It's the I, Every time I put it on, I think this is the best purchase of my life um, living in Ireland. It's <laughs> cosy and warm and waterproof and it, it enables me to go anywhere like <laughs> being it, it it actually is now completely irrelevant what the weather is like because I can put this coat on and it's because it's also kind of fairly lightweight it's not a big bulky yoke it's a lightweight cozy it's ideal perfect 100% waterproof coat that goes uh, down as far as my knees um, and it kind of it allows me to do anything everything anything everything uh, so I would consider that <laughs> one of my best purchases ever. Fantastic. And was it a certain brand or? or uh... Uh, yeah. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember. It's, it's, it's one of those kind of standard brands. Um, I did the kind of outdoor gear brands, yeah. which did, I, I actually can't remember now what it, what, what brand it is. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of my, one of my favorite things in the world. <laughs> Fantastic answer. Can't go wrong with a good I, raincoat. I do, I do think that something that allows you to do something else is, mm. is, is a great purchase. Yes. Good point. Absolutely. Rather than just being a, an end. Yes. An end point. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose then to that end, my was something that I, that I bought or not bought, I traded for, I traded an, an Xbox 360 for a surfboard. And that was one of the best uh, things Brilliant. that I, I bought in my life. And it allows me obviously to go surfing. The surfboard on yes. its own is no good on, on, unless you take it out into the water. Yes. Yeah. And it was, about, I think it was 150 euro. We agreed the, the rough trade value. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. excellent. Yeah, exactly. So it, it kind of opens the door to a whole load of other things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would uh, possibly then making a new set of friends or whatever in the surfing community. Hundred percent, yeah, uh, and yeah, friends and opening up 
opening up your eyes like to a lot to a lot more stuff kind of like what i said earlier with the book you know at a certain time um you know you go surfing and it kind of opens your opens your mind introduces you to new ideas and uh, new people yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. um yeah even even at that i went to college and i did environmental science that's what i did in college and in, what inspired me to actually do that was going surfing i thought okay i want to try and <clears throat> do something in college that's beneficial for me but also that i can help the environment so i thought i'd be an environmental scientist but i don't know if my career path after that has been helpful towards the environment but i had good uh good intentions intentions at the time for sure yeah yeah but i do think <laughs> that it, that obviously um the the knowledge and the insight that you gained doing that course will affect how you how you proceed then even if you end up in a different type of job but it will affect everything that you do then i would yeah. imagine yeah 100 percent. yeah definitely shapes your ideas yeah yeah e everything that you're exposed to you know programs you in a certain way whether that's positive, positively or negatively but yeah no 100 percent 100%. I don't I don't regret doing it definitely not. It was definitely definitely a good decision. I I started off in a completely different career as I say I didn't know anything about um the food industry at all when I started. I when I started the chocolate business, um I left college in 1987 as a um German translator and okay. I worked in as a technical translator for um with the German, with Nixdorf, as they were at the time um, in Dublin for um, seven or eight years. And I set up my own German translation company and I worked with a friend of mine. <clears throat> so you've and, always uh, been was, an entrepreneur? Well, I, I really liked being my own boss. I mm. really liked having control over the way I spend my time and um, how... I, I do a job in my methodology and I, I have always been um, very diligent and, um, you know, quite precise in what, what I'm doing and the way I'm doing it. And, I, and I, I have to say the translation business was vastly more lucrative <laughs> than the chocolate business and vastly easier at the time. Um but I mean, obviously, it was the '90s, so we we got the um, you know the documentation, whatever it was, the computer manuals in German, and we typed over them in English, and you sent them back. But it was dial-up internet, so you know, uh, sending a document back, you had to allow like several hours for this because it would keep bombing out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there was a, there were different times. But one thing that um, I'm vastly proud of in my translation. Um, sphere was um, during that time when the um, former Yugoslavia was at war uh, my very very close friend was a an international human rights lawyer and she um, realised obviously that regardless of what crimes are committed or, or what atrocities happen if they're not documented then they can go, they can become invisible. Um, mm, yeah. And the people have to be held accountable. So herself and uh, other translators 
um, a Croatian woman and um, a variety of other people went over to um, the former Yugoslavia and took uh, statements from witnesses um, of what had happened during this war. And some of the uh, witness statements were in German for some reason. Uh, so I uh, took on the task of translating a body of evidence uh, against a particular guy. Uh, and this evidence was um, heartbreaking, basically. Uh, I would be crying over it. It was like nothing I'd ever done in my, in my life. Um, and it was to be used in the um, War Crimes Tribunal, which was set up in The Hague. Specifically, this was the start of the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, as far as I'm aware. Um, and anyway, that, that was a, something I did. I translated this body of evidence against this particular guy. Uh, afterwards, I think it was, you know, the following spring or whatever, myself and my husband were going over to California. Um, he was doing some work over there for a short period. And on the plane, on the way over, they, they used to have these in-flight magazines and the middle page spread of this magazine was this big article about the first, one of the first guys who was convicted at, at the war crimes tribunal in The Hague. And a picture of him was the guy who's the evidence against whom I had translated. <laughs> Wow, and and that I think was one of the greatest achievements. One of the things I was most proud of in my life was contributing to that. Wow, that's a yeah, that's that that's 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 not an everyday story that you're involved with the conviction of war criminals in yeah. what was a terrible and brutal war. Yes. Wow, fantastic. I think we all have, uh, obviously, people's lives are, you know, encompass loads of different spheres, loads of, mm. you know, concentric uh, ideas and concepts and involvements in a whole load of things that overlap or don't overlap or seemingly don't overlap, but quite often they do. Um, and what, what affects you in one sphere obviously is going to spill over into a different sphere or what, what you learn in one instance from one set of friends, you know, affects you and affects how you behave with everybody. So I think it's, I think everything that happens to you and everything that you do and everything you contribute to or don't contribute to um, all goes to make up the type of person you are and how you ultimately um behave and you know stay true to yourself as you as you mature as well because obviously your your opinions might change uh, and uh, I like that quote from um, Muhammad Ali who said um, I think the quote is he who has the same opinions at 50 as he had at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life <laughs> I think that you have to be open to changing your opinion and not being entrenched about what you what you 100% think is absolutely accurate and true in the face of evidence to the contrary you know i think you have to be mature enough to look and to investigate it to be critical to be critical of your own mm -hmm. opinions to be cri critical of your own stance on mm -hmm. everything 
Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what allows you to grow. Yeah, 100%. And to not take everything at face value that y- you might be told. Exactly. Yeah. And um, Claire, do you have any uh, mindfulness or meditation practices that you, well, that you would practice or, or any sort of release that you have um, from being a stressful entrepreneur slash business director? Well, um, I do absolutely love the sound of birds singing. I absolutely love it. And uh, when I realized that obviously you can actually get this, you know, bird song <laughs> on on your, um, you know, whatever streaming uh, platform you have. And I, I actually put that on sometimes when I'm getting ready in the morning. So rather than, it depends on the humor, but I love that woodlandy bird song peacefulness. Um, and like I, I would listen to that. I just find it very, very calming. Um, I do that. I have a, a very small little garden out at the back. And what we have done is we've kind of made it, uh, you know, bee friendly. And um, we have little, we have a little hedgehog, I think, who lives under our under our shed. And and like lots of, you know, um, there's blackbirds in our in our trees and all of those kind of things that I absolutely love. And you know, if I look out the top window here, it's like a grid of gardens that I'm looking out on. And as far as I can see, uh, you know, we we have the kind of the uh, the one with the most um, flora or flora, yeah, that you know, foliage and a bit wild, a little bit, you know. But I just love that. I love the different berries, the different coloured leaves, the different. I love all of that, you know, rather than the curse of the fake grass. And, you know, the completely um, manicured to an inch of its life sort of gardens that I kind of find a bit soulless. I just find that even going out there into our little space um, and listening to the birds and kind of um, just looking at the bees on our on our plants or whatever, I just, I like that. That kind of I, um, grounds me, I think. I, I just find a little bit of, a small bit of nature it doesn't even have to be a massive big you know forest but I do love forests my my dad always loved forests and we, we used to go there every week whether we liked it or not <laughs> we used to go for forest walks and I think that has stayed with me um all my life that the the peacefulness and the earthiness and the life and the joy in forests and it's called you know I know I think the Japanese called it I don't know what the Japanese word is forget it now but it's forest bathing basically Mm. where you can allow yourself to be just flooded with the atmosphere of a forest i think is is very uh very good for everybody if you can find yourself one or even a tiny bit of tiny bit of nature somewhere good for the soul yeah yeah Uh, that's a great answer yeah so it kind of resets you just just being in nature and recharge your batteries yes and actually do you know what i mean i do feel we can all get really caught up with nitty-gritty that's basically nonsense and like if you can recognize that what you're worried about is absolute nonsense 
<laughs> and you know practically irrelevant then you know that's that's a bit of a release as well without being completely uh, existentialist about it but um i do think that you know part of it, of existentialism is obviously having control over your own destiny and your own path and all that which is which i think everybody should have and and questioning your place in the world and the universe um is perfectly reasonable and actually it's it's a positive thing to do you know you know thinking that you're the light you know the the you know the sun moon and stars comes out of yourself is 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 nonsense <laughs> so uh you know being aware of the smallness of you is actually mm. a release it's great you know small small and mighty i mean we all have a, a part to play and anybody who says like Oh, I don't, for example, I don't vote. My vote, my vote is useless. I go, oh, you know, everybody, everybody's vote is, is crucial. You know, and, uh, for example, Hitler was voted head of his uh, political party um, by one vote. Really? Um, you know, and I think in, in, in America, when they were deciding the language um, of you know, Parliament, was it going to be English or German? Uh, English won out by one vote. You know, there's loads and loads and loads of examples wow. where one vote is crucial. So, I mean, you know, uh, I always say to my vote for everything, and I say, you have to vote. I mean, even if, even if the other person's opinion is the polar opposite of your own, that's democracy, you know, that's, you know, it's it's crucial to vote. Um, anyway, like I've got a bit sidetracked there, but as opposed to being small and worthless, I don't think that at all. I think small, but absolutely mighty and crucial to the overall fabric. Every Everything is made up of tiny particles and each of them is crucial. So uh, that's that's your place in the universe. A tiny crucial particle. <laughs> yeah, I I heard a an exercise before. I think it's a stoic exercise where the stoic would sit and think about his place in the world. So maybe I'm sitting here in my room and I'm thinking about my problems and my issues, my life. And if I was to go up and look down on this estate. On this road, I might find six, seven other people on the road. They all have their own problems. Zoom out again, the estate, thousands. Zoom out the city, zoom out to the world, zoom out to the planet. And it kind of puts in perspective how small and, you know, not, not insignificant that your issues are, but how much more there is in the world than, you know, your particular small issues that you're that you might be dealing with or even bigger issues um but yeah no it definitely helps to put perspective on your own life and like you say i think i find that liberating rather than making you feel worthless yeah yeah no it's, it's a good exercise to, to take part in from time to time i do think that um you know being being orphaned in my childhood um definitely influenced my perspective on the world 
Um, and I suppose this, that same uh, incident, if you want to call it that, propelled me in one direction initially and then years later as I, mature, as I matured in the diametrically opposite direction. So initially I definitely felt um, desolate and worthless and, you know, what was the point? So I had my own little <clears throat> nihilistic uh, anxiety when I was 12. Um, and, I, and that did make me um, extraordinarily miserable, I suppose, and um, also self-conscious and um, withdrawn through teens and through, mm-hmm. you know, early, early um, life. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think being aware of the inevitability of death, as we all know, but like having that awareness as a child, as opposed to it being like um, an ethereal concept that might never apply to you, which is what, you know, most children or even adults who haven't, you know, a direct experience of of death. It's something that you kind of would be surprised or, you know, uh, astounded at (laughs) the first time it happens that, oh, people I love can also die. Yeah. Whereas having that um, very direct knowledge as a child definitely affects how how I behaved, um, how I valued other people, how I valued myself initially. Um, and then ultimately, as I say, it propelled me into the direction of um, enormously valuing everybody enormously feeling the um how worthwhile it is to participate how worthwhile it is to be part of uh some kind of community whether it was in a you know a sport or in the school or in your you know whatever it is um that it is that's also a self-fulfilling prophecy so if you say oh I'm worthless and useless and nobody wants to interact with me. I'll shut myself away. Well, obviously, you're not interacting with anybody. You know, you're, you're absolutely correct. Nobody is going to, you know, very few people are going to get in there. Um, so it's a self-fulfilling kind of a philosophy. Mm, Whereas yeah. then, you know, if you say, I want to interact with people, I want to engage with people, I want to value people, um, I want to be part of something, then that's that just grows organically and you know the groups or the people you, that you engage with and interact with and grow with the, the value compounds itself yeah and it's it's immeasurably more worthwhile to be part of that than to disengage from it yeah 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 no f- <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and yeah, like you say, it compounds. And yeah. No, that's no, that's a great point. Uh, um, yeah, it must have been very, 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 obviously very difficult losing your parents at such a young age. And and like you say, like that has probably driven you to be self-reliant and basically an entrepreneur your whole life. Yeah, I think it probably did. 
um, affect me. And I, it does, again, talking about getting the bigger picture, it definitely um, allowed me to see a bigger picture of what maybe I could do or what I could achieve. Um, I've never been particularly confident in my own abilities at all, um, even even now. Um, but I, you know, <laughs> I try to to assure myself that clearly I'm able to do stuff, even if I have to kind of uh, convince myself, clearly you're able to do it. Um, you know, and, and being frozen in a kind of a, a inaction is is what I spent too many years doing, like when I was um, a child and a teenager, uh, you know, where I, I, I didn't basically allow myself to, <clears throat> to to risk anything, to try anything, to do anything. So, uh, you, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable then coming from that to uh, propel yourself into situations where you're visible and where people can see if you do well or you don't do well, um, which I was never comfortable with. But um, the upside then is when you do achieve things, obviously, when you do, and even if, you're, even if you're, you don't do everything right, and you know, who's going to do everything right, um, achieving things that you didn't think you were able for or that, you know, that make you proud of yourself. And I think that's, that has tremendous amount of value, even if what you're providing is only chocolate, for goodness sake, you know, it's not, it's, it's in itself probably irrelevant, <laughs> you know, but it does offer, maybe it does offer an option for people who want to choose products that maybe um, respect the world in the way that they would like to. So I think that whereas, you know, maybe on the face of it, it's an irrelevant product. I think like we were talking about earlier, it's something that allows people to make, you know, what could be seen as uh, more positive, sustainable cho uh, choices. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's exponentially better. For you as a pair, for anyone as a uh, as a person to be brave and put themselves out there and to follow their dreams, their passions, and I think what you've done, anyone who starts a company, anyone who you know steps out there and does something like that is, it's tremendously difficult to put yourself there in the first place. Never mind all the work that goes into putting the business together. So, and you should be very proud of yourself. It's it's not everyone can actually do it. So, fair play. Um. But I, I'm just going to wrap it up with, with one final question that I, that I like to ask at the end. Um, where do you see the business, Chocolate Declare, in five years' time? Ah, <clears throat> five years' time. Um, well, it, it is quite interesting because every year of this business, I always say to myself, oh, I'll give it another year and see how it goes. <laughs> because it's been a very gradual mm -hmm. growth. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'll be 57 in a couple of weeks. I was never interested. I, well, when I started this business, I wasn't interested in borrowing loads of money or, or getting into debt or, you know, um, so I'm a bit risk averse really as a, as a, an older entrepreneur. Uh, in five years time, then I'll be 60, 
too. Like, so uh, <laughs> where will it be? I would like to see Chocolate Eclair as being a really well-respected brand. And I think with a loyal, albeit small, possibly customer base, I think that all the decisions I make and all the, you know, um, choices and avenues I pursue, I want the brand to to be respected for what it stands for. That's where I'd like to see it. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's a very honourable goal. Um, and, and Claire, can you tell us, so what shops currently can we find your products and what's the website that we can order uh, directly from? Yeah, so I have a, a shop on my website. It's called chocolateyclair.com. And I might even spell that because I tell you what, the first time I did um, business cards, uh, it, it was a lesson in how, how you shouldn't sign off on something at two o'clock in the morning. I was designing them myself, obviously, and I spelt chocolatey Claire wrong. <laughs> when they arrived in the house, I went, oh, jeepers. So it's, <laughs> it's C-H-O-C-O-L-A-T-E-Y and then C-L-A-R-E, which is my name. So chocolateyclare.com. Uh, I have a... Um, a shop on the website and I have a list of stockists there very not very many but um I am hoping to you know get footholds into more places um you know I, I always say to customers as well if there if there are places you think where the chocolate would suit um you know cold calling and cold emailing retail outlets is really not much fun for anybody but no. um I will I do I do do it as well um, to try and put myself out there, to try and just um, to get people to, to, to see that I exist because I do think that it is a product that answers a load of questions and, and you know, there are loads of customers now looking for this type of product. Absolutely. And maybe the retailers, or the, you know, they don't know that it's there. Um, you know, my husband always says, you know, you're doing people a favour by telling them about your chocolate. More people want to know about it. They just don't know about it yet. So, yeah. you know. I, I think that a, a very good avenue for you for marketing would be social media advertising. Yes. And, and going that route. Um, I'm so bad at it though, but yes, you you know, <laughs> I do I do try to do all of that. Um, it, it is difficult and it is a, it's a beast unto itself. Um, yes. You know, it definitely is. I know what one of my friends has a kayaking company and they did a work a workshop with uh social media and SEO advertising company that specialized purely in that and he he reckoned that it was tremendous it, it really d- drove up business um a few weeks after that they had partook in it and I think actually it was him and his wife that ran the company and his wife was in charge of social media but I think that the consultant company that they brought in, they were actually producing a lot of the content for them as well. I think they, they offer that service also. Um, I don't know if that's something that I, I think for, from your um, from your perspective, that would that would be very, very beneficial because a, a lot of the people. 
a lot of the a lot of the big big upturn in vegan and more ethically um conscious um consumerism has come from social media um itself yeah i think social media is a mixed bag for anybody um but and i personally i i don't do anything on it from a personal perspective one of my part of me thinks that social media is a is a curse on humanity um, yeah yeah but uh, and I do I do really feel for you know particularly maybe the younger people who who think yeah. it's it's the be all and end all is the number of likes you get on your t shirt or whatever it is I just find it that sad. Uh, having said that, obviously there are loads of groups of people who who look at social media for a wide variety of purposes, and I do still. I have a following on Facebook. I have a following on Instagram and I do put out some ads. I do them myself, which means they have a, a varying success rates. <laughs> but like that, yeah, maybe, maybe um, you know, obviously an expert on social media would just hit the right notes that I'm just not, that I'm just not getting. And I think that is part of my, one of my problems is, is the marketing of it, is the reach is getting it out there to people in a world where, you know, the digital uh, avenues are basically all that's the, the only show in town, really, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they, they've really overtaken, I think, traditional media. Yeah. Well, Claire, thank you very much um, for coming on the show. And thank you, Fergal. We wish you absolute all the best um, in achieving your five year plan. <laughs> I'm sure you'll have no problems. Well, thank you very much, Fergal. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you. Thanks very much for listening. That has been the second episode of Locating Wisdom, the podcast. Catch you on the next one.